Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others in the way that Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. So regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Today, our sermon passage is a little short. We're continuing in our sermon series through Acts, and we're going to be reading, just in person, we're going to be reading only two verses. We'll be reading Acts chapter 18. Acts is after John. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 10. Verses 9 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, before I say the word of the Lord, although we're not standing together, I just want to remind us wherever we are to hold God's word with utmost reverence as we read it, his holy and perfect word. This is the word of God. And the word, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying together? God, we thank you for all that you are and all that you do. We thank you, Father, for your holy and perfect word. And we give you glory. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to worship you, for this opportunity to look past ourselves and our own situations and come before you and give glory to you and worship you and proclaim all that you are. Abba, we pray that you would guide us into a space where we can worship you and we can believe in you. Be with us, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Give me one second. Okay. So today we'll be talking about how God is with us. The title of today's sermon is, I am with you. I am with you. So we're reading this passage. Oh, and I, wait, actually... Before I read this passage, or before I go into the context of this passage, I also just want to introduce a couple of verses to you. This is James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
nothing. I'm going to go back to this passage a little bit later, but I want you to be able to really think through what's actually going on in in James as I speak to you about the context of Acts. Okay, so the context of Acts is Paul is continuing through his missionary journey, and he finds himself, he lands in Corinth. He runs across two people, a couple, their names are Aquila and Priscilla. Their names are going to come back next week's sermon. So keep their names in mind. Aquila and Priscilla, he runs into them, they're people of Corinth, and they're tent makers by trade. It says here, I love that God includes this because God makes space for every kind of ministry at the table when he includes this, amen. And what he's doing here is he explains that Paul was of the same trade as Priscilla and Aquila and that Paul stayed with them because he was in the same business of work as them. Whoa. So Paul didn't do this full time? No. Paul was the first bivocational minister. And what I mean by that is Paul was full-time missionary. He was going wherever the Lord told him to go, and he was going in the direction of whatever God had called for him. But when he was in those spaces, he actually had a job. So let that be a... I don't know why I felt the need to emphasize that, but let that be a challenge to any of you guys who might feel a ways about ministry or maybe feel that God is calling you to do something for the church, but you also feel vocationally called elsewhere. It's possible to do both. And you can talk to me later about it, but clearly Paul was fully ordained by God to be a missionary, but he was a, by trade, he was a tent maker. That also debunks the myth that your vocation is your calling. God doesn't call you into a field of a career. Your calling is of a specific purpose for the body of Christ, for the furthering of his kingdom. So Paul was a tent maker by trade with Aquila and Priscilla while reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, I've preached a whole sermon series on 1 Corinthians. But the a key distinction about 1 Corinthians is that 1 Corinthians is very, very special, where it's really about, like it's about a city that is rich with a very big disparity between rich and poor, and a lot of people of like high standing, high status, worshiping God and getting really cultural. Uh, very, very, Corinth is a very, very uh, rich city. It's the, it's a center of commerce and economics and trade. And so there's a lot of merchants there. There's a lot of work happening there. And there's this whole, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there's this whole culture of patronage, of honor and shame, where when somebody gives you money and when somebody sponsors you, you honor them. And there's this whole like system of influence, not necessarily just by money, but the main currency of influence in a community was honor. So that's the situation of Corinth, okay? Lots of people with stiff necks, people who aren't doing that badly. And here Paul comes, a tent maker, 
with Priscilla and Aquila while reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Silas and Timothy, the scripture says Silas and Timothy, this is, I'm, by the way, I'm explaining everything in the beginning of Acts chapter 18 up till the verses that we read. So Silas and Timothy, it says in scripture that Silas and Timothy comes from Macedonia, but they still oppose Paul and revile him. The people don't listen to him, they mock him, and they oppose him. So Paul gets to a point in the middle of his missionary journey while he is called to ministry as a missionary, as an apostle, as somebody who is sent. He gets to a point with the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue of Corinth where he shakes off his garments and says, your blood will be on your own heads. I am innocent and I will go to the Gentiles. It takes, like Paul is a very, very persistent man. But the Jews and Greeks, they not only oppose him, but they revile him. And it gets to a point where it is unbearable. And he says, I've done what I can. He shakes off his garments. He says, your blood is on your heads. And he actually walks out of the synagogue and walks into a house right next to the synagogue. And in the verses leading up to this passage, actually, so Paul walks out of the synagogue. He's basically, you know, booed out of the synagogue and so he walks into the house next door and everybody in that house gets saved including the ruler of the synagogue and his household and a bunch of Corinthians that are neither Jew nor Greek a bunch of Gentiles so the house next door to the synagogue gets saved Crispus ruler of the synagogue along with his family and many Corinthians were saved and baptized You know what, like, 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 let's put it into perspective. Like, what's really happening here is like, when a blessing, you know when a blessing is meant for somebody, but that person just undervalues it and they kick it aside, and then the person that was next to them that was humble gets so much more? I don't mean to like, I don't know why this is the only example that came to my mind. I apologize if this is inappropriate and distracting. I don't mean it to be. But like, you know those stories where like a, like a, uh, I don't know, like a high school cheerleader, like a plasticky girl, um, and this nerdy dude, you know? There's this dude that likes this nerdy guy with, with glasses, and he's still got his braces in, although braces are fine. Um, and he's like super, super awkward, socially awkward, doesn't really talk to anybody, but he has this huge crush on the most popular girl in school. And the guy comes up to her, and he's like, Hey, and she's like, hey, and she kind of like brushes him aside and then just kind of like completely kicks him to the curb until she needs his homework. And then she like kisses up to him and is like, oh my God, hi. Hey, can I like get, can I get some help? Like, can I get your homework? Can I copy your homework for Spanish? And he's like so starstruck that she's talking to him. He's like, okay. And he gives her his homework and she like, Manipulates him and uses him all throughout high school just to like publicly humiliate him. And then like seven years later, he comes back and he's like the like the biggest stud on the face of the planet, and she like regrets everything. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like there are always those kinds of like chick flicks. And the moral of the story is fairly clear. It's like you kick. Uh, you never know what you have. You might never know what you have until later on, right? Like the test of time showing 
that the worth of a, of a person or an individual isn't what meets the eye. And it shows like this ungrateful individual who kind of has this, has it all and gets the attention of this, this person that this person clearly doesn't respect and like looks down on them only to have them come back like 10 years later and be a diamond. And you realize, oh man, this person was a diamond in the rough, but by then it's too late. And the blessing has already moved on to another person. Now I'm not saying, I mean, men are blessings, but I'm not trying to liken salvation to a man. So definitely do not take that away from this this illustration at all. Um, but there's this kind of mantra, right, that exists. And I think that's kind of what's going on here, but maybe tenfold, where Paul is saying a message that is completely countercultural, not really the norm. It's not cool to say the gospel that Paul is saying, nor is it beneficial. Actually, it's pretty dangerous. And he still says it in fullness and in wisdom, and yet everybody just kind of like bashes on him, and he leaves after trying so hard to help people to see how Jesus saves. And he goes into the house literally next door, and the house next door, completely new to the gospel, but at a heart posture where they were willing to receive it, everybody in that house, the relatives, the friends, the family, everybody gets saved. And we see this kind of interesting scenario that is happening. Now this scenario is low-key, if I think about it from the perspective of a minister, this scenario can be low-key traumatizing, right? Paul tries his best, but they completely reject him. Most pastors, like, have a hard time coming back to ministry after a situation like that. So Paul, in a lot of ways, is probably dismayed. He's probably hurt. Um, the people next door, unexpectedly, but by the grace of God, they're filled with joy and they become saved. But still, many more oppose the message of the gospel. It's a hard situation to be in. And because of the way that he left, you never know what they're going to do. And it's in the middle of that context that the Lord says to Paul one night in a vision. And I want to break down these two verses because I, I think it's really important what to understand what God is saying here so that we can better understand what Paul needs to do and we can glean from that in God's own promises and his own word in our own life. So the Lord comes to Paul in a vision. And the word Lord, it's not just a regular word. It's, it's a, I mean, it is, it is the word Lord, but it's actually referencing the risen Jesus. And it says the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. This means that God is via oracle, like via revelation, the Lord Jesus is speaking directly to Saul. And so actually, if you look at this in the NIV or the ESV, where the words of Jesus are highlighted in red, kind of like in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's highlighted in red here because it's viewed to be the words of Jesus coming out of his very mouth. And he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So let's break that down. The first thing that Jesus said is, don't be afraid. Where do we see this? 
think about where you might have seen a heavenly being or a Jesus say, don't be afraid. When God approaches somebody in the flesh, like when the angel comes to Mary, to tell Mary that she's going to give birth to a son, the first thing that the angel says to Mary is, don't be afraid, because she was scared. We, all, we can also think of Joshua. Do not be discouraged, do not be dismayed. God is clearly talking to Paul like this, partially because he's speaking directly to him, but also partially in light of Paul's circumstances. Paul, at this point, is hurt. He's At this point, he's compromised. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the first thing that God does in a situation where Paul is knocked down, in a situation where Paul is disadvantaged, in a situation where Paul is not treated right, in a situation where Paul is not valued, the first thing that God says is, "Don't do not be afraid. He's referencing Paul's possible fear of man. Because in this situation, it is reasonable for Paul to be afraid of what they might do to him, to be afraid of their negativity towards him. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. He first addresses Paul's fears. And then he says two things. Go on speaking and do not be silent. This is both a positive and a negative. Speak out and don't be silent. Speak out and don't be silent. Speak out is a positive exhortation. It's not just an exhortation. It's a charge. It's a challenge. God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of man. Speak out. And he commands Paul, he charges Paul with an exhortation, a challenge to live. And then he says, and don't be afraid. Don't, Don't be silent. This word, do not be silent, is actually a, like it's the, the sentence structure of this statement is actually a command. It's a strong command. So God is forbidding it. And the verse tense shows that God is forbidding this before Paul has even done it. So God's not, God's not rebuking Paul. God's not like just challenging him for the sake of being like, yeah, live on a higher level. It's not like that. God's not just challenging and calling him to a higher life. What he's doing here in this charge where God is forbidding something before Paul has done it is he's actually assuring Paul and commanding Paul exactly what to do. So first, he addresses Paul's fears. Don't be afraid. The second thing he says is speak out and don't be silent. The third thing he says is the basis of his charge to speak out and not be silent where he forbids and he gives Paul detailed instruction about how to move forward. And the basis of God's instruction is this, for I am with you. When God says, I am with you, I will be with you. It's in the Great Commission. It's in the call of Joshua. It's in the call of Moses. It's often in a call of a people or a chosen servant of of God's people. And God's active presence is the basis for Paul's command to speak out and to not be silent. His active presence and assistance 
is God's basis and the focal point of this promise that God says to him. Don't be afraid. Speak out and don't be silent. Third, I am with you. And the fourth thing is protection. No one will lay a hand on you. God is promising something of the future. God is not saying, and I I find this really interesting, because there are many ways to protect somebody. When you hug somebody who's scared, right, because the first thing that God needs to say to Paul is don't be afraid, which means that Paul was afraid. Even for a courageous man like him, Paul was afraid. What is the first thing that you say to somebody when they're afraid? You say, everything's going to be all right. In the end, everything's going to be all right. It's all going to work out, okay? But God doesn't say that. God says, I will be with you, and no one will lay a hand on me. He doesn't necessarily that the, he doesn't necessarily say that the storms aren't going to come. He doesn't necessarily say that it's all going to be rainbows and butterflies from here on. But God says, I will, I will be with you. To our fear, to our discouragement, to our dismay, when we encounter situations in, a, in, a, in an unwelcome way, he commands for us not to be afraid. He commands to speak out. He commands Paul to speak out and don't be silent. And then he says, for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you. And the fifth thing he says is also the second basis of his command in his church. And it's many more of my people are in the city. Many more of my people are in the city. So he says, instead of promising better situations, instead of promising prosperity, God promises his presence to us individually as he gives us a charge for the sake of his kingdom. But the second basis is not just for Paul, but it's for God's people. He says, many more of my people are in the city. That's actually not a reference to the present, but that's a reference to the future. God is saying, there are many that will come to Christ and know me through you in this city. I have something that I'm trying to do through you. And I have have people that have been marked by me that I've called mine. They don't know me yet, but I'm sending you. Trust me, for there are many more that will receive me through you. And I will be with you. So don't be afraid. Speak out and don't be silent. Don't allow yourself to be silenced. Five charges in these two verses. Five charges. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So he promises, he he promises to Paul three things after telling Paul to do three things. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one will lay a hand on you. And many more of my people are in the city. It's a hard word to hear from God. 
Because, see, Jesus comes to him, like when, when a heavenly being comes to you, like when, when the genie comes to Aladdin, what happens? This magical, supernatural being comes to Aladdin, what happens? With three wishes, the genie flips at Aladdin, not Adam, Aladdin, sorry. When the genie comes to Aladdin, what happens? When he approaches, when the supernatural being approaches Aladdin, what happens? With three wishes, Aladdin's life flips upside down. When you feel like God encounters you, you might feel like God is going to make it all better. I've met God now, so God's going to make everything all better. But in this situation, what God promises isn't prosperity, isn't good fortune. And it isn't the destruction of Paul's enemies either. What God promises is his presence, his protection, and his purpose. What God promises, instead of prosperity, is his presence, his protection, and his purpose. And this revelation, in and of itself... God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is a promise. This is a capital P promise of God, of his presence, his protection, and of his purpose for the kingdom of God, for his people. And within that, within what he promises, That doesn't mean situations are going to get better for Paul. But it does mean God is going to be there. It means he's never going to be alone. Because God is going to be there every single step of the way. Because God is going to cover him with his presence and his protection. God is going to fill his ministry with purpose and conviction and fruitfulness. And so God gives Paul this promise, this complicated, difficult, loving, crazy promise. And so Paul, the verse after that we didn't read, verse 11 says Paul stays for a year and a half. And he encounters a lot more situations after that year and a half. Now, what do you think it takes for Paul to continue to speak out and not be silent. What do you think it takes? To speak out in the middle of a situation where you're afraid, what do you think it takes? Some of y'all might say courage. Some of y'all might say resilience. Some of y'all might say responsibility, the ability to see something through. Some of y'all might say gifts. Like the ability to be able to speak. No. What it takes for Paul to obey the exhortation of God and the charge to continue to stand firm in the faith is actually faith. What it takes for Paul to obey God's promise It takes faith. People are against him. The situation doesn't change. But the risen Jesus Christ speaks directly, appears to Paul in a dream, speaks directly to him and promises what? No suffering? Financial prosperity? No. He promises his active presence, assistance, 
and purpose. He assures Paul and charges him to not be afraid, but to be firm. And it takes not virtue, not courage. It takes faith. Faith in what? Faith in what, Jingo? We say faith, faith, faith all the time. But what, 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 what faith? Faith that the situation is going to be okay? Faith in the promise, faith in the promise that God has for me? Faith that it's all going to work out? Faith in the word that God has given me? No. Faith in the person of Christ. Well, Jacob, aren't those things the same thing? Let me put it this way. Some of you might say, oh, some, someone might say to you, let's say you're walking down the street and you really did your best. You're putting on your best fit, all right? Everything is brand spanking you. You spend good money on this fit, okay? It's mad stylish. If you're a girl, you've dolled up. Your face is all, you put on your whole face. Not half your face, not just your brows, your whole face, right? And somebody comes up to you and says, you look lovely. You're like, thanks. Thanks, I tried. You might objectively, even to yourself, Believe that the words you look pretty are true, or you look great, or you look fine. Ooh, looking like a snack. Don't mean that in a bad way. It's cold. Anyway, so you, (laughs) whoa, whoa, whoa. Take it back, take it back. Okay. Yes, so you look great. You're looking mighty fine. You're on fire right now, right? You might objectively believe that. You're like, yeah, I do look good today. But whether or not you believe the words of a person isn't in the validity of the statement, but it's on how much you trust that person. So in that moment, yeah, you might believe those words for yourself, but you might not fully trust that that person really means those words. In another situation, when I take it a step deeper, right? Somebody says you are worthy of love. And somebody validates your worth. You are worthy of love. Because Jesus loves you and I love you. That is all an objective statement. But whether or not you actually believe that this person really means the words that they're saying towards you, and whether or not those words have weight to you, even if objectively they are true, is in how much you trust that person to be telling you the truth. And how much you take them at their word. Some people in our lives, I mean, for and and for me, like I have trust issues. God is God is working on me, but I've got trust issues because my life has not been easy, and I have not been around. I've been around a lot of people in my life in very perilous. Circumstances where friends, family, my own parents have failed over and over again. And so I have grown up with this kind of like me against the world, kind of like lone wolf mentality. Um, and so anybody who knows me like real intimately knows that even though I come off like self-assured and confident, that's by the grace of God that he is my confidence because this little girl, mm-hmm, she got trust issues <laughs> and lots and lots of fears, right? Um, and so 
if you have a hard time, like hearing this point that I'm about to say, I want you to know that I, I am with you. And I'm right there with you because it's hard to receive this. Even though it's a word of confidence, it's hard to apply it into your life. And so hear me when I say like, hey, I'm with you. I've been there. But what God is, is promising, it's hard for us to believe in, what's, in what God's promising, even if it's objectively going to happen if we don't trust God. If we don't trust God, his words and his promises to us are null and void in our hearts. And that makes all the difference in our lives. Not that God, God's will for your life isn't going to happen. It's going to happen no matter what. That's what it means that God is God. But your peace, your security, your foundation, your stability... Depends on whether or not you believe him, not just believe in him. When you trust him, when he says that he is going to be with you. And sometimes our trust in God is also at our satisfaction at his promise too. Man, God, you can do all things. How come you're not making it any better for me? What did I do to deserve this? To you, I say, I feel you. I really, really feel you because it's because it's my birthday week and because I'm emotional. But um, I think I spent the first, whoa, whoa, first 18 years of my life asking myself that question all the time, you know? Why me? And sometimes it's hard to trust God because I don't know what the heck it means that God is going to be with me. And this situation isn't getting any better. And my darkness isn't getting any brighter. And I don't see a way out. My obscurity and my lack of direction and my anxiety is not lifting. So how am I supposed to find comfort in the promise of God's presence? what it takes even though God's not necessarily promising what you want in the moment what it takes is trusting God what it ultimately takes is that trusting is is trusting that God truly is real that he's really alive that he really really loves you and he ain't trying to leave you here That he has his presence, his protection, his purpose for your life. Romans 8.28 says, For in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For in all things. All things. And so it doesn't take courage for Paul to not be afraid in a situation that is still fearful. And it doesn't take courage for Paul to still speak out in a situation where people are silencing him. It takes faith. Faith that God is truly who he says he is. Faith to trust God more than the things that you can see in front of you. Faith to trust that God is going to bring this all 
for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Faith, he's got a plan. Faith, that even when, even if he's got a plan, never mind the future, that right now, as you go through whatever it is that you got to go through, be it growing pains or terrible suffering right now, that God is with you. I read to us James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 in the very beginning of this sermon, but I'm going to go back to it right now. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The word face, when it says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, it means an unwelcome encounter. Another time that this word is used is when, Je- when Jesus tells the parable of the Samaritan, when he says that Samaritan falls into the hands of robbers, where a Samaritan gets beat up and completely robbed of everything that he has. So that's the kind of word, like when you're hit with something that you didn't see coming, when you are hit with something that you didn't know was there, and it completely ambushes you. The word trial is a word of adversity, but it's not just regular adversity, because if it was regular adversity, it's a, it's a suffering, but it's a type of adversity where someone's worth comes out. It's not just pressure that's negative. It's the kind of pressure that turns a, a lump of coal into a diamond. So when you are hit with these things, when you are hit, I mean, we've been hit with a lot of 2020 is the year where we are hit with things. If 2020 is not the year and through that God is revealed, if 2020 is not the year when we've been hit with things and, and, and 2020 might be literally in a year, this, this trial, because through it, the world, the quality and the worth of the world, the status of people's hearts, the integrity of our government, of our nation, of our global network, the integrity of individuals, the sanctity of families and of health, the integrity of church and community has completely come to the surface and everything ugly has come out. But James extort, extorts and encourages with the words, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you are ambushed with adversity. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This word faith is true devotion. The testing of your true devotion produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Maturity is not about adulthood here. Maturity means the goal and the intended purpose of God. So you may be completed. That the intended purpose of God will come into fruition. That might not be the word you want to hear. For those of us who are going through rougher times than others, and everybody is going through a rough time right now, to some degree, because of the situation of everything that's going on. But, and that, and, and so in light of that, this might not be what you want to hear. And yet, and yet, 
God says he's got a plan for you. And yet, God says that you are not alone. And yet, God says, I've got a purpose for my glory, for my people. And God says he's going to see you through. And through this thing that you've been ambushed with, As you trust God, even when your circumstances say otherwise. As you not only believe in him, but really believe him. Believe that he is who he says he is. And believe that you are who he says you are truly. Without finding your worth or value in anything else in this world, without putting your confidence and your security in anything else in this world, including your skills, including your gifts and your success, as you trust God, and as you face this trial, and as you walk through the fire because God is by your side, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be full in your intended purpose and complete, not lacking anything. The application of this is clear. God is with you. In your very moment where you feel the most desolate. And maybe the moment that you feel the most desolate is about your faith. God, I don't even know how to start again. This quarantine has worn me out. And I don't even know where to begin. God, I don't even know where I'm headed. Or maybe something has happened in the midst of 2020, the craziness of 2020. What does it mean for your life that God is with you right now? What does it mean that God is with you right now? When we, one thing that we also need to consider as we try to really apply it into our own lives, that God is with us. When you just do what you want instead of following God's will for your life or, or even seeking out applying God into your life, that's not just a matter of pride. That's not ma- just a matter of desire, but sometimes it's a lack of trust in God. It's like, I can't trust God to be there for me, so I gotta, I gotta make this work. When you think about like, you know that game where you close your eyes and you let somebody lead you? You might bump into things along the way, but you just let somebody lead you by the hand. It takes trust to fall on somebody when you can't look. It takes trust to let somebody guide you when you don't fully see. It takes trust. Another thing to apply is, how is your situation looking right now? How is the status of your family? How is the status of your work? How is the status of your school? What's going on with you? And maybe everything else is fine, but your insides are not. What you see, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing isn't everything. It is one strand. 
in the cloth that God has woven, that is your life. What you're looking at isn't everything. If God has told you, walk and go, even if it's water, he promises his presence. And lastly, believe God. Don't just believe in God. Believe God. There's a, there's a praise song, and it says, I am who you say I am. Believe God. He is not going to leave you alone. Not even for a moment. Believe God. We're going to take a moment to pray. And as we pray, I, I really want you to be able to believe that for your own, for your own selves. What does it mean that God is with you? What does it mean that God is for your life? And I don't just mean that in the sense of like, having you like take this as prosperity gospel what does it mean that God is for your life and that you can trust him even if the situation is not what you hoped it to be would you lift a prayer with me From wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.